Hey, you're listening to Innovators Can Laugh, the fun startup podcast. I'm your host, Eric Melcher. On ICO, we interview an innovative entrepreneur in the European tech startup scene every week. My goal is to have my guests share their wisdom while having a little fun in the process. Now let's dive in. Hey, ICO fans. Today we're chatting with the bootstrap founder, Arvid Kaw. Arvid is a jack of all trades, a speaker, a writer, software engineer, course creator, and the creator of Feedback Panda, which he was able to get to $55,000 in MRR in just under two years. Shortly later, he sold his startup for what he calls life-changing money. If you're wanting ideas on how to bootstrap a startup, this episode is for you. Let's dive in. Arvid, Arvid, you're a jack of all trades, a speaker, a writer, a software engineer, course creator, but you really started your career as a software developer. From 2011 to 2018, you had a full-time gigs. You were also an entrepreneur. Can you paint us a picture of what your life was like during that time? Very chaotic, I gotta say. I, my, here's one thing about my life. It's full of random choices that make a lot of sense in retrospect, but not much sense at the moment where I'm making them. So I, I always wanted to like, be in computers. That thing has always been true, but the way I approached it initially was to go to university and study computer science. And I quickly found hmm, that's really not for me. It's way too theoretical. It's way too uh, abstract. And I would have built stuff. And then I kind of got a job at a web agency and, and that got me into make, making some money. And also World of Warcraft happened. So I spent a lot of time not going to university, but playing a lot of games. So that kind of stopped my, my academic track record right there. And then, you know, going to university in Germany, you only get subsidized for a couple of years. And if you don't finish what you started, then you can't really continue doing it anymore. So I switched majors pretty much and started studying political science and philosophy because I thought, hey, let's take the complete opposite of computer science. And take something yeah. with people, you know, like something where you learn and understand how people work, how societies work, how history works and all that stuff. And got to say, now that I'm a right, understanding complex systems and boiling them down into easy to understand models and stuff, that really helps. But yeah, I, I did that for a couple of years and uh, World of Warcraft was still happening. So I didn't go to university that much either around that time. And then I got a job in San Francisco, which was really nice, uh, a company that had just been VC funded, invited me over because I had been using the same tech stack that they had been using back in 2013. That must've been around the time. And they said, hey, cool, we saw your GitHub and we really like it, do you wanna work for us? And I kind of worked for them all of a sudden, like out of not, not even having a degree in anything, but having lots of cool projects out there, that got me my, my the, the foot in the door really, and worked there for a bit, got some burnout. So I kind of stopped working. That, that was my first clash with mental health and the potential of overworking yourself for, for how, really cool. How many day. hours were you, how many hours were you working? Well, it was like five days a week, like 10 ish hours a day. And then the, the weekend was also mostly talking about work. Like we, we kind of, the times I was there, we, we lived above the place where we worked, there was a, it was a, like a garage, essentially. It was this whole, you know, starting your little startup in the garage. And that was what it was. It was really cool. And it was super exciting back in the day because we built like a cloud IDE where people could code in the cloud, which is now getting more and more normal, but it was not back then. So that was really cool. And, but also a lot of work and a lot of not much else than work. So 
you know, that's, that's when I figured, okay, life can't just be working for somebody else. Then back, back in Germany, after I, I quit that job, because it was too much for me, I freelanced a lot and I consulted because I had some knowledge at that point. Then I found a job uh, through friend. I co-founded a couple of businesses that failed horribly. It was a lot of fun there. And I got a job, did that job for a couple of years. And then I, I was already um, dating Danielle, my, my girlfriend with, with whom I live in Canada now. And she, she was an online teacher. She had a problem. I built a solution and all of a sudden we had a business. And then we, we ran that business <laughs> of software as a service business. We grew it to must've been $55,000 monthly recurring revenue, 600 K a year. And then we sold it to a private equity company within two years of founding it for what I am allowed to say is a life-changing amount of money. And ever since then, you know, life has been changed and, and I've been writing <laughs> a lot. I've been, been sharing a lot. I've been trying to empower people because now I am the person that gets to do yeah. that. Now I get to help. Now I get to teach. Where before I was the student, I was the one being helped. And, you know, it's like paying taxes. You help those who need yeah. help. And I love it because it makes me get out of bed. It makes me turn on my camera, turn on my microphone and just help, like pre present people with something that yeah. they can use. That's what I do every day. I wrote a couple yeah. books. I made a course and now I'm just really talking into this microphone and looking into my camera all the time. It's fun. It's incredible. <laughs> that is so much. And just what you just share there. So if we can go back for a second, you said you had two failures, spectacular failures. I think that's mm -hmm. what you said. Yeah. Why were they spectacular? I mean, if you can go back and do things differently, what did you learn from those two failures? What mm -hmm. were they? What type of businesses were they work? And what, what happened? Well, the first one was friends, a couple friends and I, we got together and founded a company and we tried to build a local food marketplace in Berlin because Berlin and Germany is, is where we lived at that point. And Berlin is a city full of hipsters, full of people who like really good food, but it's a big city and you know, they don't grow food in the city, but they do outside of the city. And we tried to connect those farmers just around the city to be able to sell their product to like weekend markets, local, local farmers markets and stuff in the city. We, we wanted to build a marketplace, a digital marketplace for people to, to coordinate. And we, we set out to build it. We rented an office, we got computers, we uh, hired a couple of people, and then we built something for like six months without asking anybody what they needed. It was horrible. Like we did no <laughs> validation. We had this grandiose idea of totally understanding both sides of the market which is already fairly ambitious to even do with validation, right? And we didn't talk to farmers yeah. enough to figure out what they needed. We didn't talk to the foodies enough to figure out how they wanted to purchase these things. We just thought we knew exactly what should be done. And obviously we launched the thing and crickets, nothing happened because the, the market marketplace on the, on the consumer side, <laughs> we didn't have any kind of digital payment. So people would have to pay in cash on delivery, which they didn't want because I, I was unable to integrate PayPal for some reason. And on the, on the producer side, we had built this complicated web application for people who didn't even have a computer. We, we did not validate it. It was horrible. So the, the project has, has since uh, switched over to something else. I, I left the company and I'm out of there, they have now built a little food, these kind of boxes, these, these, you know, where you have like fresh vegetables, veg veggie boxes and so uh, they, that are delivered on a monthly basis. That's happening there with that business. Okay. But our grandiose initial idea flopped and we, we spent a lot of our money, a lot of our time. I spent two days a week working on that while I was consulting. We even had EU funding at some point to be able to hire a couple people to, to help us out and do stuff, deliver things. It was, it was nice. Yeah. It was fun, but it was stupid. I'll tell you that because <laughs> we, we just, we, we thought we knew, 
And that's one of the biggest learnings from that thing is like, you need to validate every single assumption. Like if, even if you think you, you got it right and you're the first customer of your business, doesn't matter. Probably you're the only customer of your business. And then you're running into this, <laughs> this issue that you ex extrapolate your thoughts without ever checking in with reality. That, that is yeah, the, the yeah. very first biggest bootstrap slash self-funded business that I co-founded and that just imploded. It's a, it's a okay. great learning but ex and expensive one too. Yeah. Are you still friends with the, uh, the ex-co-founder there? Oh the yeah. One, one of them is, is my best friend and the, the other one I'm still on really good terms with because there wasn't any negativity towards any, any kind of in internal dynamic. Like we all thought this was the way it worked. And we were all equally disappointed. It's not that one guy was driving it and the other were just like clinging on. Now that was a collective yeah. failure that we all owned up and we each uh, grew out of it in a good way. My friend is a designer. He used it as a portfolio for his next project, for example. And yeah. the other guy who was the CEO and the idea person, well, he keeps running it and he has the connections that he made throughout all these things with all local farmers and local food um, distribution systems and restaurants. He has this still, and he uses it for stuff he's doing now. And I have a nice story to tell. So we all win, right? Yeah. 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 You can't be a true entrepreneur unless you have uh, at least one failure to talk about. Right. So yes. what, what, what was the second, the second startup that uh, didn't go so well? Similarly, I, with other friends, I co-founded a business that was, the idea was there's a lot of embedded photographers out there who are in war zones, who are like taking pictures of current events. And they're usually in areas where the internet connectivity, uh, particularly back in 2015, was not too good. So what a, what a photographer like this is doing, they take pictures and then they have a satellite phone or something like it that connects to the internet through which they upload these files into the, and, and here, here comes the uh, decades old technology, unsecured FTP servers of picture agencies, like, uh, news agencies, essentially, they have just open floodgates where every photographer that works for them or wants to work for them just ups, uploads their photos and unasked. They've just really, you upload them, you label them, you put in there what your name is and how much it costs for them to use them on an FTP server, like literally just throwing files into an unsecured system. Um, and they do that, these photographers with all the agencies that they want to send the, the pictures to, right? So you send one to Reuters, you send one to like the APA or whatever, these different than New York Times and whatnot. What that means for somebody who's sitting somewhere in Iraq or Afghanistan at the time, and they have a really, really limited bandwidth on their phone, that takes hours. And that takes hours that they need to sit in front of a computer instead of being able to document what they're doing. So what we built was a, you sent us your files once and we multiplex, we distribute them to all these agencies and okay. each agency has their naming convention. So you figure this out and you upload. It was a cool idea that I still believe it is, but yeah. I was not a photographer. My other friend who also built the thing with me was not a photographer. The guy who had the idea was a photographer or an ex-photographer, but he was also mostly working for a design agency at the time. So our, our, our time budget was really small. And again, nobody talked to other photographers. We built the thing. We even had paid customers. And then for some reason, we our CEO and we all kind of thought, hey, this is not enough without ever thinking of doing marketing. Like we did zero marketing. Like one of the most like thoughtless ways of building a business. Hey, we built this. Where are they? I, I thought it was, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of, that's the approach that we took there, which taught me once that was kind of closed that down because it wasn't worth our time because <laughs> we didn't have any money, not knowing that, you know, marketing would have helped. Um, what I learned is if you don't tell people, not just that you're there, but also how you can help them 
and show them and guide them towards you if you don't attract people. For whatever means, your business has no value. It might be the most exciting piece of technology that you built, and it might be a revelation for the people that finally end up using it. Because yeah. in our case, like if you sent your data to 50 agencies at the same time, now all of a sudden, instead of using four hours, oh God, sh should have taken a, a better example for math. It, it's over in five minutes, kind of, yeah. right? And, and that is three hours and 55 minutes that you get to make more money by taking more pictures. That, that makes immediate sense. And Feedback Panda, the business that I built later with Danielle for online teaching was exactly the same. We took a two-hour task, reduced it to two minutes, uh, to five minutes, sometimes two, depending on how quick people can click. And, and that was the value of the business. And we communicated that clearly. We communicated that inside the community that Danielle was a part of. And the, the people in the community communicated it to each other because it was easy to communicate. And we had a business. So marketing, however, right? Paid ads, un, not paid ads, word of mouth, whatever it is, you, you just have to do it. <laughs> you know, you have to actually do it to make yeah. a sale. That's, yeah. that's what I learned from that one. Okay, Feedback Panda, this application, I think right now it's, a, it's an application that people globally can use, but at that time, was it specifically in Germany or was it no. also globally at that time? So one of the benefits of having a, an English-speaking girlfriend as a German is that you immediately get exposed to a global scape or scope, I guess, of problems and businesses and all that stuff, right? Because she was teaching English as a second language to a Chinese or through a Chinese company that connected her with Chinese children who wanted to learn English. Or rather, I guess the company connected her with the parents of those kids who paid the company to then pay Danielle to teach their kids. You know, like it's a, it's an online school yeah. essentially. So she was, she, she needed a job to do from home. Danielle is a trained opera singer, but she, she had a, a leg injury at the time, 2016 ish around the time. So she needed to find something to do from home. And it's kind of hard to sing opera from home, right? It's not an opera, it's a home. So you, you can't really have people over and then sing super loudly in a, you know, apartment neighborhood. So she needed another job. She found that job teaching English online and she really enjoyed it. It was awesome. Like you connected, connected with all these cute Chinese kids who don't speak a word of English. So you have to be super animated and you have to sing and dance. It's really enjoyable to teach. But what was not as enjoyable was that she needed to file student feedbacks for the parents to read. Because we are talking about China. Chinese parents are very, very focused on making their kids be as good as they can be. You know, like the whole competition with the Gaokao, their, their big, big tests that they have to, for university entrance and stuff. They want their kids to learn as much as possible. So they are very, very closely observant of anything that happens. But okay. you, you need to write a lot of text if you want to tell a parent in detail what the, the kid learned, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that time that she spent on that, for every half hour lesson, she needed to write like 10 minutes worth of text. That was unpaid. Yeah. Th th she wouldn't be paid for the time. But if she didn't file the student feedback, they would not even pay her for teaching. That's oh. how important that was. So she had her own little system. She had Word documents and like an Excel sheet somewhere and some handwritten notes. And she would just pull it all together, type it out as quickly, copy, paste, whatever, take like a couple minutes per, per student and do that all, take her two hours. Uh, sometimes an hour if she was fast. Obviously, for a software engineer, anything that is text substitution and using fragments here and just changing the name, that just yells for a, a software solution. So she told me what she needed. I built a prototype for her. And it was nothing about German at all. Like I've been in the software industry for a while. So I, I am German, 
But the language that I speak most of my day, at least my professional day, is English, as you might be able to tell, right? That, that you, you have to expose yeah. yourself to the language and you have to learn it and you have to, to, uh, to think in it if you are a coder, because most coding prog programming languages are in itself variations of the English, English language. So that was very easy. I built a system for her, English speaking, obviously, and I had enough knowledge and experience in building software as a service businesses that are platforms that from the start, I built it so it was multi-tenant. So many people could log into it and have their own little database and can, you know, have their own little uh, selection of feedback templates if they wanted to. And she used it for a while. We ironed out the kinks. And then I just opened up the floodgates. She posted about it in the Facebook group that she was part of with all these other thousands of teachers. And since that day, we didn't have to do any paid marketing because the product was so clear and so helpful that we had almost exclusively word of mouth marketing, just bringing in 20, 30 new teachers every day, out of which 40 some percent would convert into paying users. So oh, wow. we, we started in 2017 with uh, zero money, uh, zero users. Within a couple months, we had hundreds of users. And in 2019, when we sold middle of the year, just under two years after we started, we had five and a half thousand paying users using our product. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So right off the bat, did you have a free plan and a paid plan? We or did you just uh, give like a seven trial. day, a seven day free trial. Okay. Yeah. I, I read, I read a book hooked by Nir Eyal. And in, in this, he writes about the hook cycle, which is very interesting to, just for anybody building products that they want people to habitualize, to use in a habitual way. And he talks about the fact that if you want a habit to start existing, it needs some time and seven days may not be enough. So we gave people a 30 day trial mostly out of this kind of calculation that these people get paid on a monthly basis. So I want them to be able to see, you know, they get paid before they use it and they get paid while they use it and where the difference is. We wanted people to habitualize not only using the product, but also see the immediate impact of the product. And the more people put their feedback templates into Feedback Panda, the easier or quicker they would be able to use them. So by giving people this long time to use it for free, they would notice, oh, wow, this is actually way faster now that I've been here investing my templates into this because they still had to type them in, but only once yeah. instead of every time, right? So they notice oh, this is extremely fast now that I've, that I've been using it for a couple of weeks. I guess I can pay 10 bucks a month, you know, because we, we argued and that was our price model because we knew they didn't have much money. For many of these teachers, that was the second or third job that they did in addition yeah. to actually teaching at a school. It was yeah. bizarre. It was a, was a whole situation. So yeah, we gave a free trial and then initially we had two plans, a five bucks a month and a 10 bucks a month. We quickly scrapped the five bucks a month because it just had a limit to the amount of students and a lot of amount of feedback, but we, we didn't really need that. It was 10 bucks a month for every single person using it. At a later point, we increased that to 15 bucks a month, like a year into it, gave people the opportunity to lock in their 10 bucks a month price if they bought a yearly subscription. So that was a nice influx of cash at that point. At the same point, we introduced a referral system, which we wouldn't really have needed because people referred us anyway, but we continued to incentivize them even more, you know, like, uh, you get a free, free couple months or a free month if you in invite a couple people and so on. So it was really nice. Oh, wow. That's Were you getting a, a lot of requests for like uh, any, any changes or any, just any customer feedback during this time too? Oh, we got a lot of customer feedback. If, if teachers are one thing, then they are good communicators and they know what they want and they will tell you what they want because that is how teaching works, right? You tell somebody what you okay. want them to do and then you kind of get them to do it. 
So I, Danielle and I, we both were equal partners in, in customer service, obviously, because we were the only people in the business. We never hired until we sold. We were two, the co only the co-founders for the business that were really employees of the business. And after a while, most of the things that came through um, the conversations were technical in nature. People had data problems or they wanted, this didn't work the way they wanted. So I had most of these things on my plate and Danielle took the ones that were for her, like product design and stuff. But yes, we got a lot of feedback and it was extremely helpful, like in two ways. First off, it's really nice to get people to talk about their problems while they use the product. And we had a product that was used multiple times a day because every, every half an hour, essentially, every single one of these teachers would want to create a feedback quickly so they wouldn't have to do it after, right? So they would do it and would use it. And if there was a problem, they would tell me right then. And then half an hour later, okay. they might have the same problem. The, the second part is as the software engineer of the business. I had the amazing opportunity to hear about a problem at one point, And then 30 minutes later, I would already have developed and deployed the fix for it. <laughs> and that blew people's minds. This immediate impact of a complaint or of a wish or of a bug report or whatever it was on the product is something that most of these people who were severely underserved to begin with, because who makes stuff for teachers, right? There's no money yeah. in teaching yeah. or education. Yeah. So nobody builds for teachers. They loved that. And that was the fuel that, that we, that we didn't even need to pour in because people did it themselves into the yeah. marketing efforts that they then did for us. They went to Facebook, said, you won't believe what happened. I told them yeah. this didn't work. And then I refreshed 10 minutes later and it worked. And they did that for me. This is a great product. You have to try it out. Here's my referral link. It was awesome. That was the best kind of marketing could have wished for because it was honest. And it was, okay. Yeah, it was nice. All right. So I have a theory here because earlier in the conversation, you were saying that one of your first jobs was at, was at a startup in San Francisco. It was pretty cool. It was the startup. You're, you know, you're, you're with these tech guys, you're above a garage and uh, you're getting this new experience. It's in a new city, but then your mental health, you got burned out, mm. right? Here, you are the sole engineer, the primary person that's developing a product. You've got no other employees. You haven't really invested a lot of money, or maybe you did, but not like your other your other startups that, you know, like the grocery one where you guys had an office and you hired employees, yeah. right? But the way you're telling the story, you're smiling, you're enthusiastic, and you're probably putting in the same amount of hours, maybe even more, because you're the only person as you're building, you know, Feedback Panda. So my theory is, is that there is no such thing as burnout when you've got a product that you like and other people like. What do you think? Yeah. Well, the, the, I, I would I would both agree and disagree because at the end of that journey, j just shortly before we sold, I was getting closer to that point again. And that was not because the, the product itself was bad or I did it for somebody else and didn't retain ownership. Because I think that's one of the reasons why burnout is, is hitting in, in employee situations quite a lot. It's because they create, they produce, they produce, they, they sacrifice. And then that is shoulder value. But they are not shareholders, you know, like that. There's yeah, a, a disparity yeah. between the, the value you create and the value you retain. If you have a, a startup, if you have your own business, then everything you do to grow the startup also grows your wealth. And that is one of the reasons that we sold. Because, there, of course, there's always many, many reasons. There are many, many reasons out there for why you end such a journey. Because why you say like never change your winning team kind of thing, right? You, you have things that if it goes well, why not continue? Well. All our wealth was locked in that business. Like we had built something amazing. 
like a, a thing worth millions at that point. And both Daniel and I didn't have most uh, any savings, really, really. At that point, at least, we, we were just like living paycheck to paycheck, like most people, you know. So by having a business like this, we noticed this is super valuable. We better not mess this up. Because if this just implodes because, you know, there's some technological problem or we really burn out that we can't handle it anymore, then we have built all of this for nothing. There's no value for us in it anymore. So we decided let's look into selling. And that was after people have approached us to wanted to acquire a business. So we, we built it as a sellable business from the start because I read the book Built to Sell. And if you read John Warner's book, you, you will learn that if you build a sellable business, it's going to be a great business. You don't have to sell it, but if it's great, then it's sellable. And if it's sellable, then it's great. So you might just as well build it so you can remove yourself easily. And then, you know, you have a business that you can quickly sell if you want to, or improve and increase, like grow, whatever, if you choose that path. But for me, I really wanted out at this point because solo tech founder, any technical problem that would come away, either on the server side, like some kind of infrastructure problem, or the internet was messed up again and AWS had a problem because, you know, somebody pulled a cable in the ocean and now I had to deal with this. Yeah. Or one of our integrations would fail. So all of our customers who used the integration, and there were thousands of people, would all notice that it didn't work at the same time and then just swamp our customer service chat. And that was just a lot of pressure on me as a person that was both there to reply to customer service messages and to fix the problem that I told these people somebody would fix. So, you yeah. know, that was it, it was like wearing two hats at the same time and it was impossible to, to deal with. And then the fact that no matter when the problem happened, I needed to get up and do it. That afternoon, morning, midnight, doesn't matter. I was the only person who could solve it. Yeah. So I hadn't hired, which is probably one of my stupidest decision, decisions in, in that business because I thought we will only hire when there's 40 hours of work for another person. Mm. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I guess I, I have that, no that, idea where that, that came that, from, but that makes sense though. I mean, I mean, that makes sense if you're a first time founder and you're growing and you think, okay, <laughs> you know, but what, looking back in hindsight, when would you, sh or when should have you hired somebody at what point? Well, first off, I should have hired somebody to replace me as the first person to talk to customers. I get a customer service agent as a barrier against the avalanche, the onslaught of messages at any given point, because. It is a whole different experience if you see 100 messages come in and you get the notifications on your phone, or if somebody sends you one message saying, hey, we got 50 messages over the last five minutes, something is wrong with this and that particular thing. So right. I, the first line of defense, that would have the, the first hire. The second hire would have been a software engineer of a skill level that could solve technical problems that could come up in a business like this on retainer. So, you know, like be there for... 10 hours a month, here's your monthly pay. And if we need you, we don't, we need you. And if we don't need you, that's wonderful. Should have done that just as a security option. Yeah. If I was not available, we, yeah. we, we had a couple of transatlantic flights because again, Germany, Canada, right? Danielle was from Canada. We often visited her family here and we went back and forth from Germany to Canada. So I was out for eight hours plus, right? And if anything happened during this time, nobody could fix it. With somebody on retainer, somebody would have been able to fix it. And yep. my mind would have been at ease and I wouldn't have tried to check the uptime of my business the minute the, the plane would land. Yeah. You know, all these people who get up and stand in the aisle trying to get out of the of the plane the <laughs> moment it touches on the ground. I was the person on their phone 
scrolling through my server logs the first time I, I would get connectivity. Yeah. That was my priority at that point. Not even yeah. get out, getting out, just understanding if everything's fine with my business. And that puts pressure on you. That creates this kind of, you, you don't sleep deeply anymore because you want to be able to wake up at any moment if you yeah. need to. And you don't, you don't have the, the kind of focus on building stable pieces of software if you also need to be on the lookout for customers reaching out to you. There's just a lot of pressure on me doing multiple things at the same time that are hard to do simultaneously. Yeah. And my inability to understand that hiring a part-time employee is a possibility in today's world, that <laughs> caused me against Danielle's better knowledge. Like she tried to convince me to, you should hire. And I was like, man, I can handle it. Can, don't you see? I handle it. So that was my, my ego, my startup founder ego. I could do everything. It was horrible okay. because... I, I think I, I developed several physical symptoms of, of yeah. that I had to deal with for years and still am dealing with. Like it's, it's uh, sometimes I get PTSD from the little, the sound of the intercom chat bubble that you see on, on websites <laughs> in the bottom right corner. Like when that opens up, honestly, like that opens up, I get, ah, that, that's the moment like, because I, I think, oh God, but, but, uh, some uh, part of our system just crashed. Even though I don't own the business and I haven't owned the business for now, what is three yeah. years, I still feel like I need to check our servers now because that is the yeah. self-conditioning that I did. And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was horrible. So that is, that is for me, at least the main reason why we sold, obviously a life-changing amount of money changes your life, hopefully for the better, did for us. And it allowed me to find something that is way less stressful and way more enjoyable. And that is teaching founders what I learned. It yeah, is yeah. so much easier to write a book than it is to run a software business. Info products sell themselves. All I need to do is share with people what I know on Twitter. And that's what I spend most of my time right now is yeah. being on Twitter, helping people so that they eventually maybe find my work and maybe purchase it. That's all I need to do. If they talk about it to their friends, that's all I want. I yeah. don't need anything at this point, but I want to help. So that's definitely the more enjoyable and less burnout prone activity, but it needed me to get into the space to understand how damaging that was. And it also needed the opportunity of somebody reaching us, uh, out to us, to acquire us for me to understand that's my way out. Yeah. Because I thought, so, let's just keep it, you know, because it was growing. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into some of the, uh, the books that you've read into the courses that you teach in just a second. When, when you exited though, I'm very curious here because this is the first time that you sold a company for a considerable amount of money. I'm just wondering, did you negotiate, you know, because you're, you're teaching other, other startup founders, everything from the beginning to the end, you know, how to create a business, how to manage it, you know, and how to, how to get it prepared for acquisition. So if you go back right now, do you feel like, Hey, I think I did. Or did you feel like, wait a minute, I probably could have gotten more money or, or something else? <laughs> ah, that's such a nice question because in retrospect, you know, you always wonder what if, you know, what if we had yeah. done double that or what if we <laughs> had like played this game where you act like there's more interest and stuff, but no, we, we had a fairly straightforward exchange with our acquirer. It was, it was kind of easy, the whole process, because everybody we talked to, both the people that they told us to talk to and the people that we found we wanted to talk to who had dealings with. Sure, Swift Capital, that's, that's the, the PE company we sold to. 
everybody was a friendly person that was community-minded, that was active in the community, like Tyler Tringas or Moritz Dowsinger. Both of them are founders that have a huge following on Twitter. They've been around for decades at this point. These were people that you already had some trust within the community. So we talked to them and they said, yeah, everything was fine. Like there, there was no, no, you know, backstabbing or anything like it. It was just a fair and very transparent business transaction. We did negotiate. And by we, I mean Danielle, because I'm a people pleaser. I have problems with <laughs> negotiations because I cannot act like I'm tough because I'm, I'm not. I'm just a friend. I'm trying to be friendly at least and a kind person. So I gave Danielle, who is, was, she's coming from a, from a family of farmers, of business people. Like she understands negotiation and she has no problem doing it. She's really good at it. She's good at a lot of things, but this was in particularly her doing. So no, I did not negotiate, but yes, we certainly did negotiate. Okay. And it, it gave us, we, we arrived at a price that we all found to be very fair and it does allow us, uh, the outcome does allow us to live the life that we always wanted to live. I live, I live in my basement and I couldn't be happier. You know, that's kind of where I am right now. <laughs> and well, that's really what it is because we, we got to a, like a financial situation where somebody once described that as a, what is it? A post-economic state of mind. Yeah. That's the phrase. So you have this kind of, you don't need to think about uh, the rent payment for next month or the mortgage or whatever. You don't need to think about how am I going to make this? You yeah. will make it. So the choices that you make are not about today, this week or this month. They are about what am I going to invest in for the next decade? Yeah. That's the thinking that we're now allowed to do from this position. And that makes a whole lot of difference. Yeah. And it's also making me much calmer. I may be excited right now because I just love sharing the story, yeah. but in general, I'm a very calm person. And that level of anxiety that I had back with Feedback Panda, running it, keeping it alone, keeping it running, really, that is now dispersed because we diversified in many, many different ways. And that is kind of what I think what most founders actually want. They don't want the big exit. The big exit is a vehicle to get to this point of inner peace, really stability, yeah. right? Financial stability and security. And that comes in many different shapes, not just a lot of money, Yeah, but yeah, it, it certainly negotiation was a big part of it. And we didn't need to do any tricks because we had fair people on the other end. Okay, And that was because we vetted them and they had been doing like 30 different other transactions before us. And we had a lot of people to talk to. Okay. That's good to hear. I bet a common question that you get is like, hey, what's the first thing you purchase? But instead, what I'm guessing is that it didn't even, it wasn't even a purchase. It was the fact that you didn't have to check your phone every hour to see if you had customer inquiries coming in or something that needed to be fixed that gave yeah. you happiness. Just, yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. I purchased my my time back. Like my, my yeah. the, I, I literally baseline shift in my anxiety with this. Yeah. And, Took a couple of days to, for it to sink in, but yeah, we, we had a little, you know, this moment when you, when you see it on your account, you open your champagne bottle and you do a little this, and then you notice, hmm, nothing is different, you know, because yeah. you're still the same person. You still have to make all these choices in your life, but I could, and then we transitioned the business over fairly quickly because that was really not too complicated. Having built a sellable business allowed us to essentially hand over the whole business within like an hour. We didn't need to do more because okay, we did let's hire and, tr and train people, but yeah. yeah. Let's so. talk about that. So you, you're saying it was very mm -hmm. easy to hand this over. What, what mm -hmm. books or references do you tell other people like, Hey, before you actually start, you know, 
building or whatever, if you're trying to build something that you want to sellable, here's something that you should read or here's something that you need to do. Can you can you touch up yeah. on that? Absolutely. So I, I guess I already mentioned one of them, Built to Sell. Built to Sell by John Morano is a seminal book for me because it made this thing click in my mind that if I wanted to build, like I said, a great business, I needed to build a sellable business. And if I wanted to eventually sell a business, I needed to build a great business because only great businesses get acquired. So it's essentially the same. And what makes a sellable business sellable is that it's highly automated. It's well-documented. It's essentially a franchise. You hand over the keys to McDonald's, right? If you want to build a McDonald's or if you want to franchise a McDonald's, you go to the McDonald's headquarters. You don't literally go there, but you know, you become a franchisee. They give you the big handbook, the, the McDonald's tutorial. They also rent you the space and they tell you exactly where to put what and how to hire people. Everything is codified. And if you can do that at a much smaller scale with your software as a service business, you have this manual, the business manual, the operating manual, which we had. And we had all the SOPs, our standard operating procedures, like what happens if the server is down or how do you deploy a new version? Oh, step by step with where's the password for this account? How do you log into this? I had written that all down because I'm German and we love documenting. So that <laughs> is how that happens, right? And we had a really thorough op operation manual. We had all these SOPs codified. We had highly automated everything about the business. We had made sure that all our accounts, not personal, but business, right? Our emails uh, were business emails. Our logins were business logins. There was no personal money involved. It was all in a bank account for the company. So all of this was clearly separated. And that's what Built to Sell taught me. Built to Sell is really clear about this. John Orlow has since written another book, like two years ago, which is called The Art of Selling a Business. And that is the second book that that I would recommend. Let me, let me check. I might mispronounce it. It could also be like the, the art of selling your business. Oh, that's what it is. So I have all these books right here because I regularly reference them. And that explains to you how the sale happens. And it also goes into detail. What do you need for a business to be sellable beyond the, what built to sell already had? Because uh, John Morlo has a podcast and he has now over 200 episodes or so of people who sold their businesses talking about their acquisition. Super helpful. That's what I did. Before we sold, when we were in this process of negotiating, I listened to 150 or so episodes of that podcast back to back. They had regular speed. It took me two weeks to listen to the whole thing. But then I had like hundreds of opinions about how an acquisition went, what their red flags were, what the problems were, and how they dealt with it. So I went into this negotiation knowing exactly what I wanted and what to look out for. And John has kindly turned this into a book that you can get for like $25 or something. So that's the second book that I would recommend. Finally, third one is The E-Myth, or I guess The, the E-Myth Revisited is the current name by Michael E. Gerber, which is the E stands for entrepreneurial. And that book talks about the myth that you only need to be a good technician to build a business, right? If I know how to build a, a good program, if I know how to code, I can build a software business or I know how to, I don't know, make a leather wallet. I can build a wallet business. No, you cannot. You still need an entrepreneurial approach. You need a managerial approach. You need to have a structured business. You have to structure your plans. You have to you know, have a vision and, and you need to manage it. And that's what that book tells you in really clear detail, very actionably. One of the exercises we did from that book, Daniela and I, before we even, yeah, before we, I think, before we launched the business, but while we already were building it, because we understood this is going to be something because there was some resonance from the community. They have an exercise in the book, Jerva has an exercise where you take a big whiteboard, 
um, you put your name, the owner of the business on top, you draw a line under it, and then you write CEO, and then you write CTO, CFO, CEO, all these C-levels, VP of product, VP of, um, uh, I don't know, finance, VP of the design, VP of customer service, and then you have the little roles beneath that. You built an essentially a corporate hierarchy of a business that does not exist, but of the business that you think that your business could turn into in five or 10 years. So you have all the roles, software engineer, backend engineer, frontend engineer, database administrator, frontend designer, all these little things. And you have that for all these things. So you have it for, for finance, where you have accounts payable, accounts receivable, and your SEO specialist, your Facebook marketing lead, put them all there. We had 50 different positions in our co corporate hierarchy that we had on the whiteboard. And then you're only the couple co-founders at that point, right? You, you don't even have a business yet. Then you put your names under each of these positions. Danielle was the CEO, I was the CTO and CFO, she was the CMO and COO, all that stuff. And then one level down, I was the software engineer, I was the backend engineer, I was the frontend engineer. Of course, I was all these things because I was the only technical person, but she was the product designer, she was the customer success manager, yeah. and so on. We were 50-50 split among these positions, and we knew exactly where we were. We knew exactly who had authority over which field and who was responsible for making choices. And we had a super easy time hiring for those positions because we knew exactly what kind of people we would need. What is the most high impact thing we don't like to do right now, but somebody else would love to do? Well, I guess writing blog posts for a blog is something we could pay somebody to do like once a week or so. So we had like a, a contractor somewhere writing blog posts for us because we had blog post writer on our chart. It was extremely helpful. And those are the kind of exercises you find in okay. this book, which is why I highly recommend okay. it. Um, yeah. And there's like dozens more. Like I have a, a gigantic list of books that I would recommend every founder to read. Yeah. But if you follow that list, you won't start your business for a couple months. Okay. So let's keep it Well, up. let's talk about your book. You've, you've got a couple. One is Zero to Sewed. And uh, for somebody who is interested in, in being a solopreneur, what can they expect from reading this book? What, what, are, what are they going to get out of it? So... Uh, the Zero to Sold has an interesting origin story because uh, initially I did not realize that I was right. When we sold the business, we uh, immediately took a vacation because we hadn't been on a vacation for a while. And it was one of these you, things you where that, that might yeah. be the thing that we bought. That's, that's you know, it wasn't a Lamborghini. It wasn't a, a big old whatever. It was a trip to South Africa to look at lions. It's essentially what we did because we had just been watching The Lion King and we really wanted to see it. So, you know, that worked. And when we came back from that vacation, I felt in my soul that my purpose that I had with the business prior, which was like helping teachers be better at their job and be uh, able to spend more time with their families, that purpose was gone because we had just sold it, right? Somebody else was doing this. I couldn't do it anymore. So I needed to find something to fill that void that was surrounding me, that void of purpose, void of, of any, any kind of meaningful work that I was supposed to do because there was nothing I needed to do. And I thought, let me share what I know. And I said this earlier, I turned uh, this kind of thing around, but I have been standing on shoulders of giants for the longest time. Now let me enable other people to stand on my much lower, but still kind of elevated shoulders. You know, that was what I was thinking. Let me be the teacher. So I thought, hmm, how can I do this? Let me start a blog because all the knowledge that I got, I got mostly from blogs. So I thought, let's start the Bootstrap Founder. That's what my blog is called. And I wrote a couple of blog posts and I started posting them every week and I started on Twitter at the same time. I had a couple hundred followers from 10 years of not doing much on Twitter. 
And yeah, I started using those, putting my content on Twitter and getting people excited about it, being part of the community and enriching people's lives with the knowledge that I could already bring on Twitter. Every week I posted something. And then because I'm a very lazy person, I needed some kind of accountability regimen. So I started a newsletter. And the moment I had my first uh, subscriber, I was like, okay, I better start writing something every week because they <laughs> expect it. And then all of this is the Wusafarno, the content that I write every week is now a podcast episode, a newsletter episode, and a blog post at the same time, because I reuse my content to make it, um, make other, most people able to consume it in whatever way they like. And those blog posts added up. At some point I noticed it was maybe, maybe 12, 14 weeks in. Okay, these things could be put in order. They would be a good guide, good guide to bootstrapping. And I put a free guide called Zero to Sold on uh, my website, still there, which was just links to the blog post, really. And before every link, I just wrote one paragraph of what the what people would find in the article. And then I thought, hmm, there's a couple other topics that I would like to write about. And I wrote a little paragraph about the future article I was going to write, but hadn't written yet. And I put them in there and that turned out to be a 20 some thousand words compendium, really just little fragments and links to things that I had written. And then Andrew, the great Andrew Gazdecki reached out to me on Twitter. Like he, he is the, the founder of MicroAcquire, which is a big yep. player in the acquisition marketplace yep. right now. I still have this tweet. I should frame it really. And he said, I would pre-order this book. And I'm like, huh? A book, eh? Like, I never thought about the fact that this could actually be an info product. I thought this was my blog in a slightly different shape. Yeah. So, like, somebody else said, I would pay you $10 for a printout of this right now. Yeah. I was like, hmm, I don't need that money, but I would like it. Yeah. So, how can we do this, right? And, and I, I started writing the rest of the articles. I started consolidating it into a book. I gave that book to an editor. They looked at me and cut out 100 pages because it was 600 pages long. And then... It, Throughout a very interesting experimental process with several editors, proofreaders and, and stuff, I, it turned out to be a book, 500 pages, and it's everything I know about bootstrapping, really, about anything that I learned in my many years of building my own businesses from coming up with ideas, understanding your prospective audience, understanding their problems, building a solution, building a product or envisioning a solution and turning that into a product to customer service, how to automate this. How to hire, because we, we learned how to hire way too late, but at least we did. What mental health problems are happening along the way, how exits work, how, what red flags are, what green flags are. If you can also keep your business going, all these little things that I had an opinion on and knowledge of, I put into individual chapters and consolidated into a book. And that's where Zero Soul, Zero to Soul came from. So I didn't even intend to write a book, but it just happened because I had so many topics that I wanted to write about that. Once I put them all into like a, an actual outline, it turned out to be a table of yeah. contents. It's a, it's a bizarre story, but it's, it's one of the luckiest moments. I think the luckiest moment of my life is meeting Danielle, obviously, because without her, where would I be? <laughs> but the second luckiest moment is probably that the revelation that I had something that could be the, my calling card for the future. Yeah. I'm still selling yeah, many, dozens or some or so of that book every single day in its shapes, uh, many shapes as a book, as a print book, as an audio book, whatever, every single day, people buy this and read this and then tell me that it helps them. And that is the most gratifying thing I've ever awesome. done. Awesome. Obviously there's a second book as well, but that was the big story yeah. and uh, yeah, it changed my life. Yeah. Awesome. Now also a, a couple of months ago, you launched a course, find your following 
It's a four-hour Twitter audience building course. You built a following of more than 50,000 followers on Twitter in two years' time. No growth hacks, no flashy bullshit. What was your approach? I mean, what was your main your main strategy? Because you said that you were on Twitter for 10 years, didn't really do nothing. You only had like 100 or so mm -hmm. followers. And then you just started, I don't know, just being more active. But then when did you realize like, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's a community here, there's engagement. And then... When, when did that that shift your idea of okay let me be more focused on here so it is again one of these stories about standing on the shoulders of giants because if you analyze what people who are successful on twitter do you will quickly find out that you can easily do this as well you know it's like learning by observing the field that you're in so one of the people that i have an enormous amount of respect for is daniel vasallo who also has a Twitter course out there because he, again, built a large audience by just being an active community member on Twitter. And one of the things that I, that I really, really liked that he was always doing was just engaging with people, no matter how many followers they had. Like to me, that was, that was one of those moments where, oh, okay, so you don't have to be a snob, right? So you don't have to act like you're better than these people just because they have 20 followers and you have a couple hundred. No, you can treat them like, you know, human beings and have an engaged conversation with them and join them in their ongoing conversations that they're already having. You don't have to force feed them new stuff. You can be helpful right there and then. And I codified that into my own approach, which is engagement, empowerment, and valuable content. Engagement really means go to where people are having a conversation, like swallow your pride and don't make it about you, but make it about them. Help them be supportive, right? Give them, if they ask for help, Help them right there. Don't expect anything of them. Don't pluck your product. Just help them make, build a human relationship and they will find what you have to offer if you're interesting enough, right? If you want people to be interested in you, you have to be interesting. So be that in front of them. And then empowerment is, is the thing that I really enjoy because like helping other people makes me feel good because I see them improve. So retweeting people's stuff without asking for things, inviting people into a conversation that you know could help these people. That is empowerment at scale. Right? You could do this in front of any size audience. If you have 10 people in an audience or thousands, doesn't matter. Anything that you amplify, any voice, any message that you amplify, you never know who's out there who might help these people, who might read this, who might see this. So if you don't do it, you're kind of precluding the potential of this situation. So that is that is what I see as empowerment, something that I love doing. I I think I retweet around 50%, no, it was, I think it's 50% of what I do is replying and of the remaining 50%, 80% is retweeting. Original tweets really is just like 10% of what I do because I care more, I guess, about being and vibing with the community than having people think how great I, I don't really need this, right? I, I don't want to become a guru. That's one of my fears is that people consider me one of these people. <laughs> you know, I'm a dude in his basement telling people his experience. That is who I am. And I don't want to glorify anything about this. It's fun, but you know, there are limits. So that's, that's what I do. And then there's content, right? That's, that's the other thing that is just building a repertoire of really helpful content that people can find if they look for it. You don't have to be flashy. doesn't have to be viral. It just have to be there. You have to be, um, consistent, show up every day, provide meaningful things for people. And over time, your long tail of content will lead people to you. That's, that's what Seth Godin says. And I trust that guy because, you know, he has a lot of interesting ideas that are very much true 
And so was the whole long-tail situation. So that's it, really. I engage more than I tweet. I mean, there's still tweets, but they're replies. They're amplifying an ongoing conversation. I help people get more views and I help them every day. That's good advice. I'm trying to grow my following. And uh, just like you, I've been on Twitter for over 10 years. Not much of a, not much of engagement, but this year, mm -hmm. once I started engaging with people, it became a lot more fun. I actually developed a lot of new friendships just by doing that. And it's been, been fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, before I let you go, a couple of funny questions, a quirky question. So that way people get to know your personality a little bit, Arvid. First, okay. <laughs> first question for you. Okay. <laughs> what is the most death defying act that you've ever done before? The most death defying act. <laughs> did you go did oh, you, I, in did that you, regard i think oh no <laughs> did, we already talked about the safari earlier right so um going out there in a jeep sitting just a couple meters away from what i can only describe as a ferocious cat there was a there was a couple leopards there was it leopards what are these things called yeah i think so yeah leopards and one of them really didn't like our jeep and I was just sitting there, the guy in front of me on the Jeep, and we we're in safari, like it's it's uh, middle of the day. The cat just had like, you know, been trying to hunt, but had no success. And the guy in front of me with his cameras just click, 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 annoying this cat. And I could see this, I, I don't know, like it must have been a hundred pounds worth of jaguar looking at us and realizing that we're food. It's a jaguar. What is it? Honestly, I don't know. You know, kitty. And... The moment I saw this hunger in the eye of this cat was probably the scariest I've ever been in my life. That's, that's, and, and thankfully the, our guide in the car realized this, started the engine and kind of scared the cat away. But we were seconds away from being mauled by a very hungry, very pissed off cat. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you guys have at least have a weapon with you in the Jeep or no, just a, just a camera? I, our guide had a rifle, but what are you going to do? Like shoot into the crowd of people that is currently being mauled by a cat. Usually you start driving and then the thing jumps off. Like they had that this before and it usually doesn't kill you. It just scratches you up okay. a little bit. It was a leopard. Just recommend, uh, recall now, but yeah, that, that was something. Okay. Second question for you. Here we go. Okay. Finish this uh, or, or fill in the blank. Blank is a favorite TV show that I can watch again and again. That would be Star Trek Voyager. I'm a, I'm a huge Trekkie. Like I've watched Voyager and Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all of them many, many times. But there's something about Voyager that keeps me coming back, probably because I grew up around the time that was in TV in Germany. But Star Trek Voyager, highly recommended. It's a wonderful sci-fi show and I could watch it again and again. Fantastic. Arvid, thank you so much for being on Innovators Collab. This was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun. So thank you for doing this. It's a fun show. What an amazing conversation with Arvid. As someone who's been there, there's really a lot to learn from Arvid. What I really enjoyed about my chat with him is that many of us, including myself, have dived headfirst into projects or businesses that didn't end well, but don't let that keep you from building and starting something new. If you keep your eyes open, you may just see an opportunity to build a solution for many people who have a problem that you can solve. The other thing that I loved hearing Arvid share was that looking back, he should have looked after his mental health, even when he could have and should have hired somebody to oversee various aspects of the business. He just didn't. 
And I think many of us fall into this trap. Our ambition and work ethic gets the best of us, and in the long run, it's more harmful than good. This can lead to mental breakdowns and getting burned out. So keep an eye on that. I've included links from this show on the ICO website and newsletter. It's number 48. If you forgot and if you enjoy this topic, feel free to give us a review at lovethepodcast.com forward slash ICL. As always, thanks for listening. Keep hustling out there. This is Eric signing off. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a review and star rating. Also, don't forget to sign up for the ICO newsletter at innovatorscanlaugh.com where you can get the bio and details of each guest. Thanks.